Hello there, Think Squad. This is Joel Sedicase, host of the Think Pod, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. I've been doing apologetics AMAs, Ask Me Anythings, on Discord, a social app where there are voice chat and text chat rooms. One of the moderators of the politics server on Discord has been inviting me his name is Ellipsis. He's been inviting me to do these apologetics AMAs, and we've been doing them on Thursday nights once or twice a month. And I got to tell you, they have been so much fun. It's exposed me to all these Christians and mostly non-Christians, including um, people with you know, more traditional views like Muslims and people who, just, who, who hold... Um, all kinds of crazy off the beaten path type philosophies and religious worldviews. And the questions and objections that I've been able to handle and respond to have been really, uh, really fun. Apologetics is a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And interacting with these folks has been fun, not just because it's fun to see how the Bible answers questions and objections, but also it's fun to evangelize. It's fun to tell someone about the good news of Jesus Christ and um, my own faith has been grown by it, and I want to share this experience with you. So here's the next installment of these AMAs that I've been doing. I hope it's edifying to you and entertaining, but also I hope you hear something that will help you become better equipped to explain, share, and defend the Christian message in the next conversation that you have with someone about philosophy, religion, theology, etc., So without any further ado, here's the next installment of my Apologetics AMA on Discord. Uh, Next question, we'll go with the text question here from Stephen. Joel, I noticed that a lot of theists seemingly tend to credit God for miracles such as being late to work or there was a bombing, but your lateness saved your life, for example. However, this goes against the assertion made by theists that God doesn't intervene and gives us free will. Do you not see this as simply not an attempt to keep God's profile all good and perfect? It seems like whenever tragedy hits, theists cling to the free will, uh, cling to free will, but the second miracles happen, we give all the credit to God. Did you, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, okay, so there is... What I, th- what I think is being referenced here from Stephen, and may the Lord give me wisdom on this, but um, there, there's this problem, this philosophical problem or this existential problem called the problem of evil. I'm sure many of you guys have heard of this. And the question is, if God is omnibenevolent and omnicompetent, meaning all loving, all good, and all knowing, all powerful, omnipresent why is there evil in the world and one of the explanations for that so why is there a tsunami in indonesia you know why is there um a volcano that erupts and takes out a the the city of pompeii um why why do towers collapse in miami tragically and there's this there's this explanation that says well the answer is free will god 
gives human beings free will. And because of that free will, there's evil in the world. We choose to be evil. There's going to be evil in the world. Okay. And, and it's possible. Now, this is how Elvin Planninger argues it. He says that it's possible that God even gives Satan and the demons free will. And because of that, they are free to wreak havoc on the world. And that's where you get some of these natural disasters. And, and now I, here's the thing. I actually don't argue that way. Um, I don't make the free will defense. But that doesn't mean that I deny the fact that our sin does have consequences. When Adam sinned, all of creation was subjected to frustration, Romans 8 says, or futility, depending on your translation of the Bible. Sin does absolutely have an impact on the world. Um, the Bible says that all of creation is waiting with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The natural world is is groaning, the Bible says, as in the pains of childbirth in Romans 8, again, Um until that day when Jesus comes back and we are the, the children of God, those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ are, um, are, are vindicated and given new eternal life. Um, and he judges evil. So sin does have an effect on the natural world. Yes, that's due to free will, but God's, um, or we might say free choice. I usually don't say free will because that has philosophical implications. So I, Here's the thing. I'm a Calvinist, and I believe my position is biblical. God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Now, sometimes, and I was this way for a long time, didn't understand it. Sometimes people think that God's sovereignty is on the same level as as human free choice, and therefore God's sovereignty must negate human free choice. But that's not the case. God is so sovereign. God is like the author of a book. My brother Parker said a case talks a lot about this. He wrote, I think he wrote his master's thesis on this. God is like the author of a book. We are like characters in that book. So if you've ever read Hamlet, you know, or uh, Antigone or, or any of these classical works of literature, um, you know, in Hamlet, Hamlet is making decisions. If you could enter into that book, you would talk to Hamlet and say, Hamlet, are you making this decision? Yes, I am. Okay, the Prince of Denmark is making these decisions. But those deci- he's never going to make a decision that, that Shakespeare didn't choose for him to make. Shakespeare is the author. William Shakespeare is the author of the story. God is so much higher than us that he transcends our story. He's the author of our story. So... Look, if a miracle happens where you're spared on the way to work, you know, from getting hit by a car or, you know, if you're like me and you're, you're 19 years old and the car, your car goes off the road and one of these icy Pennsylvania roads would this happen to me and, um, you, you slide off, you know, right off the road and off a 15 foot embankment and slam into a telephone pole and you walk away perfectly fine. Um, well, was that a coincidence or was God looking out for me? Well, whether or not God sent an angel to help me, I do believe that God is sovereign over that. And it was God's will that I survived that and I walk away pretty much without a scratch. Praise the Lord. I also believe that when a hurricane hits a city, that is also ultimately God's will. God is so sovereign that um, that nothing happens without his decree, without his permission. And so uh, we, we shouldn't credit one to God and not the other, although um, evil is, you might say, caused secondarily or, um, yeah, I could say that probably, secondarily by God, whereas um, God is all good and God causes good, we might say directly or, or primarily. 
Um, hopefully that's, that will make sense. But, but God is ultimately completely sovereign over all things. Now, the reason why God allows evil then, there's really three ways of answering that question. The first one is sort of what we might call the shut up defense. Um, as in, shut up, he explained. <laughs> and um, the shut up defense is what scripture says in Romans 9. Who are you, a mere mortal, to answer back to God? There is, God could explain his rationale to us. It would probably blow our minds. We probably would die. Um, we are so finite and God is so infinite. We can't possibly know why he allows certain things to happen. The, the second explanation is the greater good defense. And that is that God, the scripture makes clear again in Romans eight, which is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. It says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we see all throughout scripture, God using evil for good purposes, for good ends. Genesis 50, 20, I won't quote it for you right now. You can go look it up. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. That's a good one. Um, Acts in the book of Acts, I think it's either chapter two or chapter four, the apostle Peter talks about how the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was freely chosen by those who crucified him, but it was also caused by God, determined in advance that it would happen, and um, so that it would lead to the salvation of many people. So, you know, I don't take that route. I don't take the free will defense. Um, might be a popular way to go. I'm not going to denigrate anybody for going that route, but for me, my Bible tells me that God is perfectly in control. In fact, I was just reading in Proverbs today. It said everything has its has its purpose, even the evil, the evil ones, for the day of trouble. So there is not a single thing in this world, not a single event in this world, good or evil, that is not ultimately according to God's plan, according to God's purpose, that God is not ultimately going to bring good out of it. Oh, and then the third defense then, or the third answer to the problem of evil is um, something that is for Christians only. And that is that God comforts us by his Holy Spirit in the midst of evil. There's an existential comfort and healing and calmness and tranquility that he gives us even in the midst of excruciating pain. And sometime maybe I'll tell you about that if you're interested, but I've, um, I've experienced it deeply, really in my own life. And, um, and by his grace, I've been able to keep the faith through some pretty hor horrific stuff in my life. So, um, probably went on a little bit of a rabbit trail there, but w when we're talking about, you know, why do theists or Christians credit God with the good, but not with the bad? Um, we have to acknowledge the reality of sin, but we also have to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. We missed that. We've missed the entire point. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, next question. We got Blaze the Games with a voice chat question. Uh, are you still in chat? Let's see. I, you are. I'm going to unmute you. Feel free to ask, ask your question, Blaze the Games. Uh, hello. Can, can you hear me? Yep. Loud and clear. All right. So uh, my first question is uh, regarding a, uh, a set of verses in the Bible. Um, this is also a similar question to one already posted in the chat. So I guess it's sort of a two-in-one. But um, what it is is that obviously some Christians put up the image that um, Jesus is a, a peaceful guy and uh, all good and uh, love thy neighbor and whatnot. Obviously, uh, uh, as Christians believe that he's God, and um, 
the God of the Bible. And in the Bible, um, in the book of Samuel's, uh, sorry, was it was chapter three? I don't know. But um, it says about the Amalekites. And um, uh, as far as I'm aware, the, the believers were told to kill infants. And uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, but... Um, what I'm trying to say is, uh, how do you go about justifying this? And, uh, you know, um, how does this sort of reconcile with the view that uh, Jesus was this uh, great person? Okay. Um, yeah, so I think I may have found the passage you were looking for. First Samuel 15, verse 3. It says, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Is that the one? Uh, yeah, that's the one, yeah. Okay. Now, what is the connection between that and Jesus? No, well, as far as I'm aware, um, uh, because you uh, Christians believe that uh, Jesus is uh, God uh, or Son of God, in the Trinity and that he's divine and that uh, he's the God of the Bible doesn't that uh, sort of uh, imply that he was the one that commanded it then oh yes I see what you mean I see what you mean no 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 um, sure yes yes Jesus is Yahweh the Bible teaches that Yahweh or the Lord the I am is triune he is three in one father son and Holy Spirit and so it was not the Father or the Spirit who was incarnated, it was the Son, Jesus. And I'm also of the belief that anytime you see God in the Old Testament, when anytime he appears in like a corporeal form, that is Jesus. That's, or it would be better to say that's the Son, the pre-incarnate Son, before he became, you know, um, incarnate in the womb of Mary. And so, yeah. so if I understand your, your question then, if Jesus is God and God commanded the Amalekites to be killed, then is Jesus evil? Yeah. Is that the question? No, uh, yeah. And how do you, yeah. Uh, and how do you go around justifying, you know, the killing of a infant who hasn't committed any crime apart from what well, being born? Yeah. Yeah. Fair question. So the, um, so yes, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. You're absolutely right about that. And yes, God did command the Amalekites to be killed. That's true. It is possible that there was some hyperbole in that command that um, that we do find in Scripture sometimes. It'll, you'll see um, passages that say, uh, you know, there was never a calamity like that no, uh, up to that point, and there never will be anything that bad again. It's a hyperbolic statement basically saying it was really, really bad. Um I have done some looking into some of these commands. It is, uh, you, you run into some problems or some similar problems like when you're, uh, when you're looking at the city of Jericho, for example, which was completely destroyed. And, um, and people say, well, how could that be? Jericho was most likely an, a, a, a military outpost, um, more like a fort. Uh, somewhere in between a fort and like the city of Chicago or something like that. It was not purely a residential place. Um, that being said, um, to my knowledge, I don't believe there's any record of the Jewish, of the Israelites actually killing infants. You, you might know of something that I don't. I don't believe it's ever recorded that they actually killed infants. So 
that makes me think maybe this is a hyperbolic command. You know, in other words, go wipe them all out. Um, I don't know that for sure, so I'm not willing to die on that hill. But I've I've heard that. I have not done a deep dive on that. But that's that is one possible explanation. Um, the other thing I want to say as well as well is um, historically speaking. Now I'm 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 going to invite you to step inside the biblical worldview with me for the sake of argument here. I, I take it you're not a Christian. Is that correct? Uh, no, no, I'm I'm a Muslim. Got it. Okay, so. Step into the biblical worldview, the Christian worldview with me for um, for a moment. Within the biblical worldview, we have to take it all together. We have to take it all together. And um, the same God that commanded the annihilation of the Amalekites is the same God who gave the Amalekites 400 years, the Amalekites and the other Canaanites, 400 years to repent. And... They never did, um, and the the some of the sins that are listed there um, are absolutely atrocious. As as a Christian, I'm reading this and I'm like, oh my goodness! I mean, we're talking about um, sacrificing their children. We're talking about sexual immorality and depravity that I wouldn't even want to describe to you. Um, I'm sure as a Muslim, you would you would. Um, revile many of these sins as well. Um, sins that are an absolute affront to God, rank idolatry. Um, just, they were an evil, violent, sexually depraved culture. God gave them 400 years and God prohibited the people of God, the Israelites from going into the land until they reached the fullness of their sin. God would not wipe them out. So that means generation after generation after generation, 10 generations, if a generation is 40 years, um, were allowed to live in the land, basically defiling the land until finally God sent in the Israelites to do his work, to to take them out. You know, there's no world government at the time. And um, often the way that God punishes one people is by sending in another people to wipe them out. That is what's going on with the Israelites. God is sending them in as his hammer, as his uh, sword to take out these people who have been defiling the land, who have been um, just blaspheming God and, and doing all kinds of horrible crimes against humanity and, and all kinds of horrible things. Um, so, God, the Bible says God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. God would much rather have people repent. And, um, and so he is, uh, uh, but he is a holy God. The Bible says he can't even look at sin. Um, the other thing to mention as well is that Israel was, it's, this is very important. Israel was not acting on their own volition here. It was a command from God. And so again, I'm inviting you to come into the biblical worldview. By definition, everything that God does is good by definition, because God is the standard of goodness within the Christian worldview. So there, there is no possibility that God can be evil in anything that he says, does, intends, or wills. Now, if I look at something that God does and I go, well, God, that was evil. The problem cannot possibly be with God because I would have to use the standard of God's goodness in order to judge God. Instead, what I'm saying is, I don't like that you did that, God. But then God might very well answer back to me, well, who are you? You know, uh, it's like a clay pot answering back to the potter, why did you make me like this? Well, the potter might say, well, who, who, who are you? You know, um, you, you don't have the authority to 
to question me. Now, I take that with all of the whole witness of the rest of Scripture, and I see the goodness of God, and I see the long-suffering and the mercy of God, and the ultimate culmination of that, of course, is in the sending of Jesus Christ. So, when Jesus came, he did not come to bring a sword. He did not come to destroy or to kill, even though he could have. He didn't come to reign as a king. He came um, to do something very different. He came to defeat the works of Satan and to set his people free. And the way he did that was by laying down his own life for, not for holy people, but for evil sinners. So the incredible thing is in the Old Testament, we learn that sin deserves death. And God is completely sovereign over life and death. Babies die every day and it is a tragedy. Believe me, it's very sad. I hate it. Okay. But God is ultimately in control of that. And the wages of sin is death. And, um, and so death entered into the world through Adam and, and the sad repercussions of that is that babies die and adults die and God is very fair and God will never send an innocent person to hell. We know that. So uh, there's not going to be anybody in hell who doesn't deserve to be there. Um, but God sent Jesus to die, not for holy people, but for evil sinners. So the incredible thing is in the Old Testament, we learn that, that the wages of sin is death. In the New Testament, we learn that God is so loving and so kind that he took the wages of sin, death, the curse of sin on himself and the wrath of sin upon himself. And so Jesus is, um, when you think about the fact that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament and that Jesus is supremely holy, and then you think, wow, that is the same God who hates sin that much. He decided to take sin upon himself and to die for his people. That is that is amazing. That's incredible. And then he rose back to life just as scripture said that he would. So, so yes, within the Christian worldview, there's perfect harmony between the God of the Old Testament and the goodness of Christ in the New Testament. God is good in both and God hates sin and God punishes sin in both. The ultimate example of that being Jesus Christ. Now, as a Muslim, um, you know, one of the things that I would encourage you to think about is how can a holy God pardon sin if sin is a debt against God? How can God pardon sin without that sin being paid for? And if God is perfect, then what are you going to do in order to be perfect enough for God? Unless God is not fully perfect and therefore God, you know, can accept um, sin, you know, with him in his house forever. And um, so, you know, it's something, something to think about. I, I, this is, I know this isn't, I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat here, but, but this is, you know, these are the kind of things that I talk about with Muslims is, you know, how, what, how is your God going to deal with all your sin? And what do you really deserve? You know, I know for me, I know how many, I mean, I don't even know all my sins, but I know I've sinned and I know how holy God is. And if I didn't think that God had paid for my sins, um, oh man, I'd, I'd, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be terrified. I'd be absolutely terrified because of how, how holy and awesome God is. So something to think about. Yeah, sorry, I'm, uh, uh, Ellipsis, I also said that um, another question, but um, you, you don't have to give a long answer for this. It, it can literally be like yeah. less than a minute. Keep but, it quick, um, ready. Yeah, no worries, go for it. Yeah. Do you, as in, uh, why do you think that Christianity is sort of uh, declining in Western countries? You know, in the past, like, um, 100, 200 years, uh, we've seen the rise of uh, LGBT, uh, separation of 
uh, church and state mm. and, uh, yeah etc yeah man it's a great question and it's something I'm I'm working to combat <laughs> um, the Bible says that uh, Jesus said to his followers you are the salt of the earth salt does a number of things one of the things that it does is it preserves it also makes people thirsty and Jesus called himself the living water so the church um, Jesus warned us about that he said that if salt loses its saltiness it's not good for anything except to be trampled underfoot and so um, I don't claim to have all the the grander purposes of God um, understood um, as to why the church is uh, declining so so uh, frustratingly in the West. I'm encouraged by how the church is growing in some of the hardest places in the world. Iran, China, South America, Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm very encouraged by that. Christianity is still growing by leaps and bounds worldwide. But um, if I had to give a diagnosis of the church in the West, I would say um, the same thing has happened to us as what used to happen to Old Testament Israel. Uh, we've grown comfortable. We have um, we we have decided that there are things that we love more than God. And when I say we, I sort of mean like like Christians, kind of in general, um, in the West. And there comes a point where God says, "Okay, I'm going to give you what you want." And there's no way to grow and be healthy if you cut yourself off at the root. You know, a plant can't grow if it cuts itself off from the root. And so um, what I'm praying for, what I'm hoping for, and one of the reasons why I do these AMAs is to show people not only that Christianity is rational and reasonable, but to call and, and equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message um, because I believe that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, and it, it kills me to see churches closing, churches dying. You know, you're talking to, you're, you're a Muslim, you might have a different take on things, but as a Christian, um, I'm sure you can you can imagine, you know, how I would feel about that. Excellent. Hey, thanks. Plays the games. No worries. I'm going to mute you if you want to be unmuted after the, when you leave, just DM me. By the way, if you are remuted after, uh, you ask a voice chat question. Just at DME once the chat, once the AMA ends, or once you leave chat to get unmuted. All right. Next question from Become Unforgivable. Uh, sorry, Become Ungovernable. There we go. All right. <laughs> That's better. So, uh, <clears throat> I assume you're a Trinitarian. As a non-Trinitarian who believes the Son of God is a title and not an actual heretical term, <laughs> how would you explain the fig tree in Jesus' moment of doubt if Jesus is God in human form. Also, if the Father, if, if the Father is above the Son, John uh, fourteen twenty eight, they cannot be the same person and cannot be on the same level. Lastly, if Jesus and the Holy Spirit were uh, both clearly declared as God in other forms, why was the why was this only declared? And accepted by the church over 200 years, nearly 300 years after the crucifixion. Hmm. Jesus in 325 at Nicaea, the Holy Spirit at 381 at the First Council of Constantinople. You can take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, man. All right. Can you uh, help me out with that fig tree one? I didn't quite catch that. How do I explain the fig tree? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's typing in chat right now. Okay. I can ungovernable. I can unmute you if you want to talk. Yeah, let's let's talk ungovernable. Let's let's talk about this because that's too much, man. Right, I can't buddy. I can't remember all that. All right, get prepared to get dunked on. Go go. You can talk now. 
Or he might be typing. And so it's like 4 a.m. there. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, we can, let's, let's just, I don't know what he's talking about with the thick tree. Okay. But you can, you can hit the other points because those are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Uh, okay. Okay. Tell me the second one again. What was the second one? Okay. Um, uh, if the father is above the son, then he's citing John fourteen twenty eight. They not, they cannot be the same person and cannot be on the same level. So we'll start there, I guess. Uh, okay, sure. So let's pull up John fourteen twenty eight and just make sure that we're reading it in context. John fourteen, we'll say twenty through thirty. Okay. All right. Um, so here, I guess my question for ungovernable would be. Is he a modalist where he believes that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same person? Or is he some kind of Arian where Jesus is like a created being who is lesser than God the Father, but maybe like the first and best of God's creatures? Or, you know, because different um, different heresies are going to need different responses. But, um, so, Okay. In John 14, 27, here's, here's what Jesus says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. You have heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk to you much longer, because the ruler of the world is coming. He has no power over me. Let's take that last statement there first. He has no power over me. The ruler of this world, that is Satan. Why does Satan have no power over Jesus? Jesus actually gives us the answer. In the passage where Jesus describes, um, let's see, I believe it's Matthew, hmm, I want to say Matthew 12, maybe 22. Uh, someone can maybe look that up and let me know. But there's there's a passage where Jesus talks about the strong man. Jesus has just been accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, also known as Satan. And what Jesus says is, no one can go into a strong man's house and plunder what belongs to him unless he first binds the strong man. Then he can go in and take what's his. Jesus is describing himself as stronger than the strong man, stronger than Satan. How can Jesus be stronger than Satan if Jesus, uh, given the fact that Satan is a very powerful fallen angel, quite possibly the most powerful fallen angel, fallen celestial being. Um, and yet Satan has no power over Jesus. Why? Because Jesus overcomes Satan. He came to overcome Satan. <coughs> Excuse me. And ontologically, Jesus is stronger than the strong man because um, what, what's stronger than an angel? God. If you go back in that passage too, uh, we get another clue. John 14, verse 20, it says this, on that day, you will know that I am in my father. You are in me and I am, I am in you. Um, 
In John 17, Jesus draws out this theme more, how he is in the Father, the Father is in him. There's a theological term for that. The theological term for that is perichoresis. Um, there's another similar concept called circumincession or cir- circumincessio in Latin. I guess it's circumincession in, um, in English. Um, what these two terms are communicating is that the father and the son, while being distinct from one another, are in one another. And um, so the father is in the son. The son is in the father. They, they, they relate perfectly to each other, interpersonally to each other, and they have forever, um, interminably into the past. Um, so you you hear people you hear Jesus say things like you know I'm in my Father and by the way I'm going to bring you followers into that relationship as well not ontologically you're not going to become God but I'm going to um, sort of bring you in myself in into that intimate relationship with God and. Um, uh, that's why in Ephesians 1, it talks a lot about how God chose us in Christ and God blesses us in Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in the Father. Christ is in the Father ontologically. We are united to Jesus as part of our um, uh, our, our sanctification, what the Eastern Orthodox call deification, which is kind of a problematic term for me as a Protestant. But um, but anyway, so how can Jesus be, um, how, can they, how can they be on the same level. Jesus says, the father is greater than I. Yes, absolutely. The father, economically speaking, is greater than Jesus at this moment in history because Jesus had humbled himself. He had um, he had emptied himself of his not of his godhood, but of the privileges that came with that godhood. And the word for it is kenosis. Let me see if I can look that up. Here we go. Philippians 2, 7, it says, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. So um, when we talk about the Trinity, we, we talk about the ontological Trinity, wherein Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are ontologically equal, equal in their being. But ec- there's also the economic Trinity. Uh, economics meaning, you know, work. How does the Trinity work? How does the Trinity work out his plan for salvation? How do the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together? Well, according to the Bible, the Father sends the Son, and the Father and Son send the spirit there we're back to the filioque um clause there uh ellipsis and um the the uh, i think i think i think i got it that time yeah um but the the um the father son holy spirit work together but there's no question that they are ontologically equal now the, the other thing that you have to understand too is Biblically speaking, as Christians, first of all, Jesus does not say that the Father is better than I, which would have been more appropriate if God were at an ontologically higher level. God is better than us as well as being greater than us. But Jesus says the Father is greater than I because Jesus had subordinated himself to the Father to do his will. And part of that will, of course, involved going to the cross. The Bible says that he, in Hebrews, it says that he... um, he scorned the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. He he didn't care how shameful it was. He willingly took it on because of the joy that was set before him. And so Jesus humbled himself. He took on the form of a slave. 
and he went to the went to his death on the cross and when we say these things we're talking about the economic trinity the son being incarnate carrying out the father's will of course it was the son's will as well but as christians we also understand that taking the lower position is not becoming worse as christians we understand that the hierarchy that we often think of that the world actually promotes is actually flipped in god's economy so what does jesus say he says many who are last will be first and the first last jesus also said after he washed his disciples feet he said that whoever wants to become the greatest among you must become the least so when jesus says the father is greater than i and we see jesus taking on this form of a servant this form of a slave we say oh man jesus you're that's lowly that's you know oh, i i don't i don't want to see you that low in fact the apostle peter when jesus was washing his feet he said no lord you you must never wash my feet what did jesus say he said unless i wash your feet you have no share you have no part of part with me and and um in other words we have to accept the humility of jesus we have to accept his humility on the cross we have to accept the fact that god himself god the son humbled himself on the cross and died for our sins and we have to recognize that in god's economy that is the most exalted most righteously amazing thing if i can say this without being blasphemous that god has ever done the glory of god was so manifested on the cross at the lowest point when jesus overcame satan sin death the world the flesh the devil he overcame them all in one fell swoop by the one act of righteousness and um and that's Romans 5. The one act of righteousness is not like the trespass. So, so um, when Jesus says the Father is greater than I, he's talking positionally about the roles that they've taken on. He is not talking about ontologically. And we know this because Jesus accepts worship as God. Jesus, when, he, when Jesus rose from the dead, St. Thomas, um, after he had put his hand in Jesus' side, he calls him my Lord and my God. And then fast forward to the book of Revelation. Jesus is worshiped as almighty God, as the lamb who was slain. Um, even go back to uh, Daniel chapter 7, and you see the Son of Man, which by the way is Jesus' favorite title for himself, receiving a dominion that will last forever, a, a kingdom, a God, godly kingdom. And that is exactly what we see happening in the New Testament. After Jesus rose from the dead, he is exalted back to the right hand of the Father, which, by the way, I think the nail in the coffin here, well, there's two nails in the coffin, maybe. Uh, one of the nails in the coffin is in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus says, and now, Father, restore me to the glory that I had before the creation of the world. The Son is being restored to the glory he had before he created the world. Just like it says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the other nail in the coffin is, um, oh, let's see, what, what was I going to say? What was it? Um, oh, I forget, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll think about it. But the, um, the, one, the one thing in part three of your question is, um, and listen, I respect you for making the question. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to put you on blast here, but you are espousing heretical views. You need to know that. The, um, the, the other thing that you said was, how can they be the same person? Well, that, unless you just slipped up there, that shows me you don't understand Trinitarian theology because the Father and the Son are not the same person. They are two distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. There's one God who exists in three persons. And um, and actually, I, my, my kids even understand this because um, in my 
catechism called catechids, that's one of the first questions the kids learn is how many persons are in the Godhead? Three. Who are the persons in the Godhead? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's basic Orthodox Trinitarian theology. It was something it is it is very biblical. It was not invented at any time in the two hundreds or three hundreds. It was um the, the term Trinity came along later. Yes, I recognize that. But Peter, Paul, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, these were all experiential Trinitarians, as uh, theologian James White says. They worshiped Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says, ah, this is the other nail in the coffin, Matthew 28, 19, baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name signifying one Godhood, one Godhead, one authority, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's an implied doctrine. It's not expressly, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but it is, uh, it's definitely there. It's very biblical, very orthodox. And um, I would encourage you to repent of your sins and trust in God, the Son who died on the cross for sinners like you and me. Excellent. Get dunked on. Become ungovernable. Thank you. Yes. Okay, that'll, that'll, that'll adequately answer the question for me so I shall move on